If you have your Bible with you, open to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel. We're coming to the end of, uh, of, cha- of we'll be in chapter 31. We're coming to the end of the book tonight. Uh, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel kind of tie together. But for tonight, we're just going to look at chapter 31. It's a little bit on the shorter side, but I still think there's some things in there that we need to, uh, to take a look at. So if you'll just follow along with me, I'm going to read down to verse 6, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and he fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the battle came, Saul and Israel wasn't ready. You see, several years before, Saul had stopped following the Lord. He had stopped obeying the Lord. He had disregarded the prophet Samuel's instructions to him. And here comes the greatest battle of his life, and he's not prepared for it. He's been preoccupied for the last 14 years chasing David around, trying to kill David because he felt that David was taking some of his fame. He felt that David was encroaching on the kingdom when, in fact, Samuel had told him, Saul, the kingdom is being torn away from your hand. Remember why the kingdom was being torn away from Saul's hand? Because Saul failed to obey what God had told him to obey. You see, God had told Saul, I'm going to cast judgment on the Amalekites. And I'm going to judge them now for the way that they treated the nation Israel when they came into the promised land. When they went through Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land. The way they attacked them. And he said to Saul, through Samuel, Saul, I want you to go out. I want you to utterly destroy, wipe out the Amalekites. Take all the people and kill them, all their livestock. I want them completely wiped out. And we talked about how the Amalekites were a picture of sin. And there was no place for sin in the life of a believer. There's no place for these people among God's people. And so Saul, he goes in and his men and they destroy the Amalekites, but they keep King Agag alive. And they keep, well, they keep the best of the animals alive. They keep the best of the sheep and the animals and they bring them all back. And and Samuel comes back and he says, how'd the battle go? And he goes, wait a minute. What's that bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ear? And Saul blames it on the people. Oh, the, the, the men did that. The men took the best for themselves. But Samuel, they're for your God. Samuel, you're gonna sacrifice them to your God. And Samuel told Saul that that day the kingdom was being torn from his hand because he failed to obey what God had told him to do. Now tonight we see the end of Saul's life. What a tragic life we lead, what a tragic life he has led. He started strong, he did well in the beginning, but then we come to the end and he's fallen away from the Lord. 
He's fallen away. So many people start strong for the Lord, but they don't finish. So many people start, they have the right intentions, and they want to accomplish great things, and they want to serve the Lord in great ways. But then what happens? They fail to destroy the Amalekites in their life. They fail to destroy the sin in their life, and it eats them up. It tears them down. And eventually it pulls them away from the Lord, which they, who they should be following. So we see Saul tonight, and we're going to see that he, he dies. The Philistines have come into the land of Israel. Remember what happened is they, they began to line up for battle. Saul went to do what? He went to see a median, a spiritualist. And they had the spiritualist call Samuel back from the dead. And, hey, what do I do? What's going to happen? And Samuel told him, basically he said, tomorrow at this time. Tomorrow at this time, you, your sons, you're going to be dead. You're going to be with me. You're going to be dead. And the nation Israel will lose to the Philistines. It's guaranteed it's going to happen. That lets us know that God's word will come to pass. Remember that. God's word will come to pass. God has told David he will be king. You can bet that that's going to happen. God has told Saul the kingdom will be torn from his hand, and you can bet that was going to be happen. Now, what I find interesting here, the Philistines fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua, Saul's sons. Three of his four sons are killed here in the battle. Three of his four sons are killed. The battle becomes fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the, by the archers. Now, I want to ask you this question. Why did Saul's sons have to die in the battle? Why didn't Saul? I mean, Saul was the one not following God. We know Jonathan, his son, was following the Lord. We know Jonathan was. So why, why did all of Saul's sons have to die in the battle? Why did Saul have to die in the battle? Couldn't have God just, God, couldn't you just been a nice God and, and just moved him away quietly? Just moved him out of his position, made David king. Maybe, maybe just crippled him a little bit or just maybe just put him out of the way a little bit. You know, is it, why, why did Saul really have to die? You know, sometimes I think, the, or all the time, I think that the scripture is the best commentary on the scripture. So to answer that question, why did Saul have to die? If you'll turn over with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, I want to show you why Saul had to lose his life or why Saul lost his life. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, it says this. It says, so Saul died... For, for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he, that he being the Lord, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Do you see, what, do you see where Saul went wrong? Do you see the mistakes that he made? See, you see, we can learn something from Saul's life. We can see that Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. Because he did, what made him, what was so unfaithful? What did he really do that was that bad? All he did was let his men keep the sheep. He just, you know, he killed most of the Amalekites. He just didn't kill all the Amalekites. Is that really that bad? It says, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. He didn't keep the word of the Lord. He didn't, he didn't value the word of the Lord. He didn't, he didn't carry out the word of the Lord. And it says because he consulted a medium and didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, 
I want to share a story with you. And there was some truth to this story in my life. Some of you have heard it before, but when I was down in Florida trying to figure out whether or not I was going to move to Cumberland, I, and I say figure out because I knew that I was called to Cumberland. I knew that I was supposed to come here, but I was trying to figure out if I really was going to come here. Because when it comes to keeping the word of the Lord, we have a choice, don't we? You can choose to keep it or you can choose to disregard it. It's entirely up to you. So I entertained, I thought about the idea of, well, maybe I won't go. Maybe I'll just stay in Florida. I mean, you know, it's cold up there in the wintertime. And, you know, there's no leaves on the trees in the wintertime. And it's, it's, it's different than Florida. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just stay in Florida. Well, I have a friend of mine. His name's Steve. He owns a, an insurance company down in Florida. And I walked into his office one day, one afternoon. It was around lunchtime for me. And I wanted to see if he wanted to go to lunch. And uh, he was sitting behind his desk looking at some paperwork. And, and I sat down and I, I said to him, uh, just kind of off the cuff, nonchalantly, I said, hey, Steve. And he knew that I was praying about coming to Florida and everything, or coming to Maryland. And I said, hey, Steve. I said, what do you think God will do if I don't go to Maryland? And without a beat, without missing a thing, he looks up and he goes, he'll kill you. And he looks down and he starts writing again. I said, he'll kill me. I'm like, he'll kill me. And he looks up and he goes, ah, I'm just kidding. And I said, why do you think he'd kill me? And he looks back up and he goes, well, if you're not going to listen, what good are you? And he finishes writing what he's doing. Well, I didn't say anything to him. I just, I just kind of sat on that for a minute. And, and we went off to lunch that day. And, and to this day, he doesn't remember having that conversation. Or he says, I can't believe I said that to you. And I said, you know, you don't understand. I said, the Lord spoke to me that day. You know, I said, because I was really contemplating, should I really, really, do I, am I really going to go to Cumberland to plant a church? I said, and when you said that, I, I, I guess that there's some truth that if you're not going to obey what the Lord calls you to do, if you're not going to lead the people the way that the Lord called you to lead, what good are you? You know, what, what's the purpose of keeping you around unless there's some other purpose? Now, I'm not saying that if you don't do exactly what the Lord wants you to do, he's going to kill you. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is in Saul's life, his failure to obey God is clear. His failure to, uh, to forsake what God had called him to, which, le which was leading the people of Israel, representing the people of Israel before God and representing God to the people, replacing the prophet Samuel, he failed miserably at. And now we come to the end of his, of his pathetic life, I guess you could call it. The last 14 years have been terrible in his life. He started out great. But then back to my other question, and you can turn back to, uh, to 1 Samuel. What about his sons? Man, why'd they have to die? Can I just tell you or remind you, this is another place in scripture where it reminds us that our sins have consequences. If you as a leader, whether you're leading your home and your family, whether you're a pastor like I am leading a church, whether you're leading a business, do you realize the sins that you commit will have consequences that go along with them? It can bring destruction upon your family. It can bring destruction upon your business. Your workers can lose their jobs. Do you realize the, 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 the value of what you do makes a difference in other people's lives? It's no longer just about you or just about me. If I was to blow it, if I was to do something to disqualify from being a pastor, would it affect all of you? Sure it would. Absolutely it would. And I'm aware of that. Pray for me to make sure that never happens. But remember this, God was also working in the life of David. 
God had to make way for David to be king. God also, I believe, removed Saul's sons. Jonathan certainly would have yielded the throne to David because we know from previous chapters. But the other two sons, maybe not so sure. And we're going to see the remaining sons going to give David a problem in the future when we get to 2 Samuel. But God's, God's doing something miraculous here in the life of David. Remember this. David, David is the one that abandoned the Israelites. He's gone after He's gone to, over to live with the enemy, gone over to the Philistines. He was ready to go do battle. He had joined the Philistines. He wanted to be part of this battle on the side of the Philistines. And when the Philistines came in and to do battle, they looked at David and his men and they said, no, no, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let David do that. We don't trust David. So they sent him back to where he came from, back to Ziglag. God's protecting, God's mercy is doing something in David's life as well. And we know what happened when he got back to Ziglag. It was burned and he had to go after his family and his possessions and all that stuff. So God's working, what we see here is the hand of God working in multi-areas, multi multi-faceted sides at one time. So what we see happening is we see, we see God working in David's life. We see God's working through Saul's life. We see God's working through Saul's children. We see the, we see the hand of God at work here in all this. So what's taking place is Saul passes away, he's killed, but look what happens. Look what happens. He says he's severely wounded by the archers, the arrows. You can imagine the battles raging. Saul's a, a warrior, he's fighting, he's wounded. He knows he's gonna die, and he says to his armor bearer, he says, look, draw your sword. Just draw your sword and thrust it through me, lest these uncircumcised men come and they kill me, and they're gonna abuse me, they're gonna torture me. Come on, just kill me. I'm already dying, just kill me. And the armor bearer says, no way. I'm not killing you. You're the king. I'm not, there's no way I'm not killing you. And then what does Saul do? It says he fell on his sword. He took his sword and he fell on it in an attempt to commit suicide. Now, it's not suicide as we would normally think in a sense because he did have a mortal wound, we're, we're told here in the scriptures. He had, this, he had this mortal wound and he says, I just, I just want to, I'm, I'm ending it. It's all over. Uh, I've done, I'm done, I've had enough. I don't, I don't want to deal with it anymore. That's it, I can't take it anymore. I don't, want the, I don't want the Philistines to get my body. I don't want anything to happen like that. You know what I think's missing from this area of scripture? What I think the saddest thing that's not here? There's no repentance before God. There's no time, there's no Father forgive me, there's no Lord you know, help me, there's no Lord, there's nothing. He knew the day before that he was going to die. He knew when he went to see the median and he talked to Samuel. There's nothing in his life here that would say that he repented. He went to the grave without finishing the race of his life. He finished poorly. Think about how many people that we know as Christians, they start out, they start out strong. They get saved. They start working through things. They overcome sin. They're serving the Lord. And then before long, something creeps in. Something happens. Maybe it's boredom. Maybe it's familiarity. Maybe it's, uh, I didn't like this church, so I, got, I moved away, and I haven't been back to church. Now I'm isolated for a while. Maybe it's isolation. Maybe there's something that happens. Can we finish strong? Is, is that a goal? Have you set your mind to finish strong? If you haven't, I want you to. I want you to set your mind to finish strong. I want you to finish the race that God has given you to run. Whatever it looks like, whatever it might be, whatever the circumstances, that, whatever hurdles, obstacles come along, will you determine tonight to finish strong? No matter what. You will not, you will not give in to the enemy. You will not sacrifice. You, will not, you, you won't give in. I will finish strong. 
You see, because the way that we set our mind at the start of the race is going to depend the finish. Do you know the end of the race is always harder than the beginning? Isn't it? You ever run a race? What's the hardest part? The last mile or two, right? It, it, the, hard, the longer it goes, the harder it gets towards the end. We have to finish strong. Saul here doesn't. He falls on his sword. Him and his three sons die that day together. Look at verse seven. Look at the impact. Not only does it have on his family, look at the impact, his failure to be ready for the battle. Look what it has on the nation of Israel. Verse seven, the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan. Now, just let me make sure that you understand where this is. The Mediterranean Sea is off to the west of Israel, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, of the Dead Sea. They have now come in. The Philistines occupied that area along the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they have now come eastward all the way to where the people to the, to, the, to the Jordan River are now fleeing from their homes. So they've literally come all the way across the Promised Land. And they're all the, they, they've, they've severely entered, they're deeply entered the nation Israel. And they're in a sense sort of dividing the nation Israel at this point. They've come right through the middle of it. Dividing it. Isn't that the great way to, d- to divide something? You can divide something, split it in the middle, split it in half, and then work from both ways forward. That's what's taking place. The nation, the Philistines are, are dividing the nation of Israel. Those who were on the other side of the Jordan, they saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Listen, Saul's in the camp. He sends the men out to fight. The men have retreated. The Philistines have, 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 uh, have chased, have given chase, and now Saul and his sons are dying. They've died in the camp on Mount Gilboa. And back in verse one, it says they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So they come out in verse nine, and they cut off his head, they stripped off his armor, and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. The very thing that he was afraid of, the very thing of him being tortured, the very thing of his body being used is, is exactly what's taking place. That's exactly what's happening here. Notice what they've done. They've taken the armor of Saul. They've nailed it up in the temple of the Ashtoreths. That's the false gods. That's the gods of war that they would worship. They're praising their false gods for giving them victory over the people of God. Kind of makes you wonder, God, why would you let that happen? Why would you let, why, why would you let that take place? Because God's plan's playing out. God's got to remove one man who's failing to follow him so he can raise up another man who will follow him. God's got to remove Saul before he can put David in the throne. And we see God working in both, both of these, both of their lives. Now, here's what's interesting. Now, look at verse 11. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and they traveled all night and they took his body, or took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there, probably because they were unrecognizable. And then they took their bones and they buried them under the teramisk tree at Jabesh. And they, fa- and they fasted seven days. Why Jabesh Gilead? Why did these people from Jabesh Gilead find it necessary to go get Saul off the wall? Stop him from being humiliated. Stop the nation Israel from being humiliated. 
If you remember correctly, back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, after Saul was anointed king, he went back to his father's house, started working on the farm. Remember what happened? Back then, a king by the name of Nahash of the Ammonites, he came and he wanted to do battle with Jabesh Gilead. And he told Jabesh Gilead, he goes, listen, we're going to come in and we're going to take over your city. And Jabesh Gilead said, no, why don't we make a deal? And the king, Nahash, said, all right, I'll make a deal with you. We're going to poke out all of your right eyes. All of your right eyes we're going to poke out so that we can bring reproach, so we can embarrass the nation Israel, and more importantly, the God of Israel. And they said, well, yeah, I don't know. Let us give us seven days. Give us seven days to see if we can think about this and what we're going to do. And if in seven days nobody comes to help us, then we'll, we'll come out and we'll let you poke out our right eyes and we'll be your servants. You love the way they negotiated back then, right? But that's what was going on. So then what happened? Word got sent to Saul, who was the newly appointed king, who was on, the, uh, on his father's farm. Saul took an ox. He chopped it up. He sent it out all over, the, all over the nation Israel and said, you guys need to get together. Our brothers need support. He gathered 330,000 men. He went down to Jabesh Gilead and he wiped out the Ammonites and Nahash. He wiped them out. 40 years later, Jabesh Gilead is now remembering the mercy that Saul had shown them, how Saul had supported them. Now, I believe that's why they're the ones that come to get Saul down, to get Saul's body off. The mercy that we show won't go forgotten. It'll be remembered. I believe that's why Jabesh Gilead is the one that comes down. Just jot a note down, 1 Samuel chapter 11. You can go back and read it for yourself later. And as I look here at the picture... I don't know about you, but I picture Saul sort of hanging on the wall. He's hanging there. And my mind goes to Christ because he wasn't pinned to a wall, but he was pinned to a cross. And I can see some similarities there. And I can see how as Saul's hanging there, being disgraced and being beaten, Christ was doing the same thing. Christ was disgraced and Christ was beaten too. The only difference is Christ didn't deserve what he was getting, but he did it for us. And the only difference is Christ's death would only be temporary and he would rise again on the third day. Now, I want you to kind of look ahead. We're gonna jump into, I think we are gonna jump into 2 Samuel tonight. Look at verse one. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had stayed two days in Ziklag and on the third day, behold, it happened, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and he prostrated himself. So just to kind of give you an update, what's going on? Now we're back at David's camp. We're back in Ziklag. Okay, the battle between the Philistine and the Israelites has taken place. David is back in Ziglag, and now a young man comes to David, and he falls down prostrate before him. And uh, David says to him in verse three, "Where have you come from?" So he said to him, "I have escaped from the camp of Israel." And David said to him, "How did the matter go? Please tell me." And he answered, "The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen, and they're dead." And Saul and Jonathan, his sons, are dead also. So David said to the young man, who told you? Who told him? So said to the young man, who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, 
As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And Saul said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. Or he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So let me just get your attention so you understand what's taking place. This man comes running before David and he says, David says, well, how do you know that they're dead? How do you know? Tell me what happened. And he says, listen, I was coming along in the battle. I saw that they were, there was a battle. I saw that the Philistines were pressing hard. Saul, I, heard, I saw Saul laying on his sword. He called out to me. He said, hey, who are you? And I said, I'm, a Mal- I'm an Amalekite. And he said, listen, I'm, I'm already dying. Would you just go ahead and kill me? So I did. Well, how do you know it was him? And he said, I brought his crown back. I brought his crown back for you. You say, wait a minute, Rob. Is this, is, I'm slightly confused here. Well, there's, two, there's one of two things happening here. Either when Saul fell on his sword, he wasn't completely dead, and he called out to this man, hey, will you, will, you, uh, will you just go ahead and finish me off? And he does. That's one possibility, and probably likely this, the most possible. The other possibility is, is just as likely. It could be this as well. It could be this was the first man to come across King Saul dead. As he comes across the king dead, he sees his crown. He recognizes who he is. He's probably got the nicest armor on of all, the, of all the soldiers. And so he takes his crown. And him thinking, him knowing, Saul has been pursuing David all these years. I'm gonna, uh, David is probably going to be the next king of Israel. I'm going to go see if I can get in good with David. So I'll tell David that I killed Saul. And I'll give him his crown. That could be the plan also, just trying to get in good with David. David's response is, Verse 11, therefore David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. How are you not afraid to kill the anointed of God? And David called one of the young men. And he said, go near, execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You say, oh, I didn't see that coming, Rob. I didn't see that coming. David said, how are, remember David had the opportunity to kill Saul twice. And he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. And now he's going to, notice, the, notice what it says. David fasted until evening. He mourned, he wept, and he fasted until evening for Saul. Then he realizes something's not right about this. Who is this guy? And who does this Amalekite think that he is that he can come and, and kill King Saul? He's the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to let that happen. And David orders him to be killed. And he says, your blood is on your own hands because you've testified that you've killed the Lord's anointed. But what I want us to recognize in this whole thing, the guy here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, did you catch the tribe that he was from? Where was he from? The Amalekites, right? Who were the people 
that Saul was supposed to destroy? The Amalekites. The Amalekites. When we studied that area of scripture, we pointed out that the Amalekites are a picture of sin in the life of the people of God. Let me put it to you this way. Do you have Amalekites in your life? Do you have sin in your life? If you don't utterly destroy it, it will be the very thing that destroys you. Just like in King Saul here. If you don't wipe out the Amalekite in your life, if you don't wipe out the sin in your life, it will come back and it will destroy you. It's not God's plan for us as believers to cohabitate with things that are not of God. It's not God's plan, not even for a moment. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear. You'll walk in the spirit or you'll walk in the flesh. Your mind is filled with the things of God or your mind is filled with the things of the world. You know, the Bible makes it very, very clear. There, there's a distinct line and it's, it's not gray. It's, it's rather black and white. As believers, we have to ask ourselves the question, is there a sin in my life that I'm playing with, that I'm keeping alive, that I'm toying with because, well, I'm just not ready to kill it yet. Can I tell you that it's time to get rid of it? Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. The nation Israel was supposed to destroy all of these people when they came into the promised land. But they didn't do it. Because they kept them around, they became a burden to them, they became a problem to them, and they began to destroy them. It works the same way in our life. What are the things that we keep around? And we, we, we like to call it, I'm struggling with, right? I'm doing battle with. I'm, we have, we have, it's, it's, my, it's my little thing that I'm dealing with. No, no, call it what it is. If it's sin, call it sin in your life. But know this, God's word, God's promises will come back true. If we don't destroy it, if you allow it to fester and you allow it to grow and you might wipe out part of it, but you just keep it there just occasionally, just, just once in a while, just, just because, it's gonna come back and it's gonna destroy you. An Amalekite took the life of King Saul, the very people that he was supposed to destroy. Oh, I destroyed most of them, but he left their King Agag alive. He left their King Agag alive. I destroyed most of them. He failed to be obedient to God's word. Don't ever take it lightly when God's word tells us something. Don't ever just excuse it. Don't ever just say, well, that's, that's, yeah, I, I, just, I just can't do that. No, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't ever just excuse your sin and think, well, that's just who I am. That's just part of me. That's just, that's just the thing that, you know, that, that's just my cross to bear. That's not true at all. When Jesus died on the cross, he set us free from sin. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that you've been set free from sin? I find that most Christians don't believe that. I find that most Christians say, you know what? I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't believe that, but what they're really saying is I'm not experiencing that. I'm not experiencing freedom from sin. I wanna, do, do you guys believe this book? Do you believe the Bible? How much of it do you believe? You believe all of it? Every, all of it, you, you believe every bit of it. I'm gonna to turn to the book of Romans and I wanna read something to you. It says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Do you believe that? That you're no longer a slave of sin if you're a Christian? That's what it says. Do you believe it? I do. For he who has died has been freed from sin. You see, it's real simple. Either I believe that or I don't believe that. If I believe it, then I says I'm free from sin. 
Down a little bit farther, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Do you believe that? Do you believe that part of it? Down a little further in verse 18, having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Do you believe you've been set free from sin? A little further down it says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That all came out of Romans chapter six for your reference. But here's what I find too often is in the life of a believer. If I were to say to you, do you believe the Bible? You would say, absolutely. If I say to you, do you understand, do you realize that you are free from sin? Well, nah, yeah, I mean, in, in theory, I'm free from sin. That's not what the Bible says. In theory, we're free from sin. The Bible says we're free from it. Robert, are you suggesting that we, we as Christians can live perfectly? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is as Christians, we are no longer under the bondage of sin. We are no longer, let me put it this, this way. You no longer have to commit the sins that you commit. They're, they're, they're committed by choice. Let me illustrate it to you this way. If you believe the Bible and you believe you're free from sin, okay? If someone goes to prison, are they free? No, they're not free, right? They're locked up. They're, they're living in a jail cell. Now, what if the guard was to come along and he was to open the gate to the jail cell? Say, the judge said you're free to go. Go ahead and go. Go ahead, go on, go on out. Get out of here, go on, get out of the jail cell. And the guy says, nah, nah, I'm not going. I'm not going, I don't believe that. I don't believe the judge really let me go. And he sits there. The door is open. Go ahead, you can go anytime you want. Just get up and leave. Just walk out. No, no, that's, that's not true. It's just, it's just yeah, you might have said that, but I, I, I'm, just not, I'm, just not, I'm just not feeling that. I'm not experiencing that. Would he, would he be free from sin? Would he be free? He would have the opportunity to be free, but by choice, he's sitting in the cell. Would that be a sad picture or what? Do you realize there's Christians sitting in the jail cell of sin right now with a door hanging wide open and they won't walk out of it? They've been set free from the very things that entangle and ensnare us and they will not walk out of the open door that's sitting for them because, I don't know if I can. You don't understand my struggles. No, the things I'm dealing with are much harder than that. Don't forget the gospel of Jesus Christ not only brings eternal life, but it brings freedom from sin. That's why he died. That's why he died, so that we would be free from sin. Reckon yourselves dead to be indeed to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Been free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of God. For he who has died has been free from sin. How did we die? We died with Christ. When we accept Christ, we're dead and we're baptized. We're, buried, we're dead and risen with him. Our, our salvation is in him. Here's what I know. There's far too many Christians with these little Amalekites running around in their life. And I say, when I say to you, Rob, when I say to you, hey, put the Amalekites, put the sin to death in your life, you say, oh, I don't know how. I'm addicted, I can't, I can't stop, I can't do this, I can't do that. Yes, you can. How? Because you re believe the scripture. The Bible says you're free to it. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can live a perfect life. But what I am suggesting is the sins that we commit are we're committing by choice. Because before you had Jesus Christ, in your life, the sins you committed, you had no choice. You served your flesh because that was all there was. You didn't know any better. Is that making sense to everybody? You follow me with this? 
The freedom that we have in Christ is immeasurable. Don't take it for granted. We don't want to be people who are sitting there with an open jail cell, not afraid to walk out because we don't simply believe that we're really free. That would be the dumbest thing in the world. We've been given the power to overcome sin in our life. If we don't overcome it, it will overcome you. That's what the scripture is teaching us. We have the choice. You want to overcome it? You already have everything you need. I need a program. I need a, I need a, I need, I need a counselor. I need, no, you, you've got everything you need in Jesus Christ. But here's the catch. You've got to believe you're free from it. Because if you don't believe you're free from it, it will forever keep you in bondage. Now, Satan is known as the father of lies, right? So what's he going to tell you? That you're not free from it. He's gonna tell you that you can't do that. You have to keep thinking that way. You, you need this. He's gonna tell you all this stuff. But where do we go back to? We go back to Romans chapter six and says, no, no, it says I'm free. It says I'm to reckon myself to be dead and alive to Jesus Christ. It says I've been set free from sin. I'm a slave of righteousness. As a believer, we get that choice. As a non-believer, they don't have that choice. Somebody who doesn't know Christ, who do they serve? themselves, right? There's no other choice. Think about your own life. Before you knew Christ, who was the most important person in your life? You. You did what you wanted, how you wanted. You picked the husband or the wife that you wanted for certain qualities that you wanted. It was all about you. But when a believer comes to Christ, it's no longer about them. We get to rejoice in the fact that we've been set free. When you share the gospel with somebody, make sure you tell them they get that too. Because oftentimes the gospel is nothing but fire insurance. Someday you're going to burn in hell. Give you fire insurance, believe on Jesus. No, no. Do you know what brings the alcoholic? Do you know what makes the alcoholic an alcoholic? The bondage of sin. Do you know what makes the drug addict a drug addict? The bondage of sin. Do you know what makes the, the guy that's a, the, 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 the sexual addict or the pornographer or the adulterer or the adulteress? Do you know what makes, it's all bondage. All, the, all of the sins that we could consider in our minds, and I don't even like to name them because we all have different ones in our lives that, that tempt us in certain ways. It's all bondage. It all wants to pull us away from the things of the Lord. And Jesus said, hey, I set you free from that. You don't have to do it anymore. Rob, it's not that easy. Oh, yes, it is. The power, really, when you say it's not that easy, you're saying the gospel's not that powerful. My Jesus died, and there's enough power in it to set us free. I hope you believe that. If you don't really believe it, you'll spend the rest of your Christian walk struggling with sin. Anybody know Christians that struggle? Their life's a struggle. Uh, I don't want to do it. I do it. I don't want to do it. I do it. I don't want to do it. It's a miserable place to be. That's being sitting in the jail cell. My prayer would be that we would realize what we have in the gospel and that we have been set free. When we look at the life of the apostle Paul, he did not finish well. He didn't. We don't see a repentant heart. We see him going to spiritualists and medians. We see him chasing David around. We see the Lord just basically taking 14 years, the last 14 years of his life were miserable. He was unhappy. He was, demonic oppression was set in, we're told. He didn't finish well. But how about us? You see, these messages are in the scripture for us to look at our life and say, what am I gonna do with this? What are you gonna do with it? You can walk out and say, eh, big deal, that's, that's Saul. And that was Saul. But our lives are just like his. We, we have the same choices in front of us that he had. 
Will you finish well? Will you utterly destroy the Amalekite in your life? Will you walk out of that jail cell? And will you live for Jesus Christ?